0: Your Bibles with you today. We are going to be back in our Psalm 23 series. So you turn over to Psalm 23. That's about if you kind of take the Bible and split it right in the middle, you'll be pretty close to Psalm 23. It's about smack dab in the middle. So we just sang Psalm 23, and and uh, and we've talked about throughout this series how familiar Psalm 23 is to us um, as Christians. It's it's all over the place. We obviously we sing about it, uh, we put it on t-shirts and coffee mugs, and because it's just a very encouraging passage of scripture, but even if you never stepped foot in the church, even if this is your very first time being exposed to these things, I'd be willing to bet that of all the passages we could be looking at today, this might be one that's familiar with you, because we talked about how Psalm 23 has been appropriated even in popular culture. Uh, The verse that we're going to study today is even, if you've ever been to a funeral, you may have heard Psalm 23 verse 4, the one that we're going to study today. So it's just a very well-worn, very familiar piece of scripture. And so when we teach through or when we study through uh, a scripture like that, it can be hard sometimes because we feel, it's so familiar to us, we feel like, well what more could we learn from Psalm 23? And hopefully as we've gone through three Uh, verses now of psalm 23 we've been taking it verse by verse hopefully we've seen that there there's a lot more that we can mine from it i mean i've heard psalm 23 used in a wide variety of of teachings and and sermons it's it's been used to teach all types of different aspects of, of god and so i think just like with any uh any scripture but particularly one like psalm 23 there's just a lot so we can mine out of it. So Psalm 23 is a worship psalm. It's written by David, and, psalm, and, and David is worshiping God in this psalm. So we're going to look at it in its entirety. I'll read it for us as we've been doing throughout this series. We'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll focus in today on verse 4. So Psalm 23, a psalm of David, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So again, I mentioned today we're going to focus in on verse 4, which says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And if you recall when we talked a little bit about the structure of the psalm, verse 4 is actually a transition verse. So a couple different things start to transition in verse 4. It's the final verse of the shepherd illustration, So you see there's two different illustrations here in Psalm 23. The first four verses are this shepherd illustration. The last two verses, he shifts focus, and it's more of a banquet illustration. Um, It's also David transitions here from talking about God to talking to God. So we see the pronoun switch, right? So he goes from he to you. So third-person pronouns in the first three verses. Now he's talking in second-person pronouns. He's not talking about God, but rather he's talking directly to God. And lastly, I think we see that the tone of this verse, it it starts to shift a little bit, right? So we start out, we're in the green pastures and the still waters and our soul's being restored. It's a very uplifting, very light, very encouraging place to be that's why it's such a popular those are such popular verses to use right because it just we want to be in those places that's where we want God to put us right in the green pastures we want him to put us next to the still waters where we're peaceful and safe and and being nourished but but now the tone switches a little bit right and so like I said there's probably a million different implications or a million different sermons that we could draw out of Psalm 23 and, and, uh, but there's just a few things that I think I want us to focus on here today as we look at verse 4. A few truths that I think David, in his in being filled with the Spirit as he was writing this psalm, a couple of things that I think he wanted us to see that were intended in his message. So, again, I just mentioned that David has been talking about God, right? He's been talking about God's good provision and his graciousness to us. He says that about, he talks about how God gives us all we need. And remember, when Joe kicked us off in, in, in this psalm, he talked about the difference between what we need and what we want, right? It says we shall not want, right? And and there's a difference between wanting and being in want, right? I can want all kinds of things, right? I can, I can want, uh, you know, more money in my bank account. I can want a promotion at work. I can want a, a new car. I can want a bigger house. I can want a million different things, and there's a million different things you ask a million different people there'll be a million different things that they want but be, but wanting things and being in want are very different right being in want is talking about not having what you need right like if i'm starving i'm in want if i'm if i'm if i'm in poverty i'm in want right so god says we'll, we shall not want he doesn't say that we'll have everything that we want but he he promises us everything that we need. And it's important to recognize that everything that we need to accomplish his pur- purposes, right? So some people to accomplish God's purposes might need to have a very large bank account or a very large house. And maybe he gives them those things because he intends for them to use them, those resources to glorify him in some way, right? But that might not be everybody's story. So we need to definitely recognize the difference between wanting and needing. But God promises to give us everything that we need to accomplish his purposes in our lives. But when David starts to talk to God, where is he, right? He's not in the green pastures and the still waters anymore, right? Where is he when he starts to talk to God? It says he's in the valley of the shadow of death. So where is that? The exact Hebrew phrase is samaveth. And it means more literally deep darkness. So it, it, this phrase, if you look into it a little bit more, it, it, it kind of covers a wide variety of things. So the, the translation that we utilize, that's popular, the valley of the shadow of death, it's an accurate translation, right? Because that's encompassed in it. Sometimes this, this word samaveth talks about the, the deep darkness, the place of death, right? But But there can be more to it. I think that what david is ultimately pointing us to here is more than just the actual death i think he's pointing to those dark seasons of life right the deep darkness trials and suffering and i'm going to make my case here and i'm going to rely solely on the grounds of human experience so david was a man and just like all of mankind he was sinful he was broken he experienced suffering and trials throughout his life he was well accustomed to, to suffering and trials. David wrote many of the psalms, and many of the psalms are psalms of lament, where he's pouring out his heart uh, uh, just in the midst of, of deep suffering. Suffering is is inevitable in a fallen and broken world. We all, because we live in, in this world, will experience suffering. Some suffering is, is brought about for a variety of different reasons so in my experience and in this 44 years on on earth and a a number of years in ministry though um, people talk about God in the good times but they talk to God in the midst of suffering so right wrong or indifferent I think in the midst of suffering we're keenly aware of our deep need for for God's presence in our lives right we we we, def- we see God's our need for him more and more in in the in the midst of suffering and in those dark seasons and we're just not prone to be as tuned to it attuned to it when we're in the good seasons when we're carefree and moving through those good times we we fool ourselves into thinking that we've got things under control we're, we're apt to to take God for granted in the good times we're like The sheep with our head down, grazing in the field, just eating our way into bliss. Not a care in the world, paying no mind to anything around us. We're not even really keenly aware of the shepherd that's there watching over us. We've just got our heads down. We're enjoying that green grass. But David, a man after God's own heart, to his dying day was still a broken and fallen human being. And sometimes as sheep, the wolf will come right? And what do we do then? What do we do when the wolf comes looking for a meal? Suddenly it's a very different story, and David knew this. He experienced this. Do we not think that he knew about his own proclivity to live as, and, as one who takes God for granted, to live like he didn't need God? Do we not think that David was not attuned to that or, or accustomed to, to feeling that? I think where, you know, we can ask the question, where does a psalm like Psalm 51 come from? if not from a man who's keenly aware of his brokenness. And David wrote Psalm 51 in the midst of some of his most desperate, most sinful, most most broken uh, points of his life. Psalm 23, 4, though, is, is one of the most often quoted lines from one of the most often quoted scriptures. I mentioned how it's commonly used at funerals. You'll oftentimes hear it quoted at funerals. It's kind of like the funeral version of 1 Corinthians 13 that we always hear at weddings, right? The love passage. And it's true that death is the great trial that looms over the entirety of human experience, isn't it? Right? Oftentimes death is called the great equalizer because regardless of your status, regardless of your wealth, regardless of your power, regardless of any of those things, right? We all inevitably come to the same point in our lives, which is death. It's the end for all of us. It's the great equalizer. To be human is to live under the shadow of death. It is something that we live with a keen awareness of. I think that the reality, that reality is definitely woven into Psalm 23 here. I think it's something that we definitely see. It's what we're meant to see. But I think if we just focus in on that one aspect, if we just focus on the death aspect, then I think we miss a lot of what David's trying to, to make Uh, the point that he's trying to make here i think we we miss out on a lot of that sweet nectar of the of the passage this morning so as christians we don't need to fear death but we also don't need to fear the 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 seasons of darkness the dark seasons of our lives i think that's the encouragement that we're meant to see here fear is a common response to trials and suffering whenever we feel like things are out of control Right? We're prone to fear, we're prone to anxiety, we're prone to worry. Those are one of the, the core tenets of the study that we've been going through. Those of you who have, been, who have been able to participate in that on Wednesdays as we've studied anxiety and worry, one of the core tenets is that the root of that is oftentimes just in the things that feel out of control in, life, in our lives, right? So like when things start to— when we start to realize that we don't have everything under control, that we don't have a firm grasp on things, we're prone to anxiety and worry. So a person that's living paycheck to paycheck, right, knows that they're just like one unexpected bill away from financial difficulty, right? One broken down car repair, one unforeseen medical bill away from having some financial stress in their lives. And so that causes them fear and anxiety and worry because they feel like it's out of control. Or maybe the person that has a wayward child, they just feel like they just can't control that child, right? So they feel anxiety and fear and worry because they feel like that, that child is out of control and, and they can't control what's gonna happen to them and so we have fear and worry. Or maybe someone who's been in a relationship where they've, where they've experienced pain and, and, and abuse or something like that, then they, they have a hard time in other relationships because they're afraid that they're gonna lose that person or that that person's gonna treat them the same way, right? So any time that we feel like we don't have control over things, we're prone to worry. It's a, a normal human response. The what-ifs and the unknowns in life, are they're just fertile soil for fear and doubt and worry and anxiety. And all of these are present in the psalm of Beth, the deep darkness. All of those things, I think, are present in that word. They're encompassed in that word. But David reminds us that we need not live in fear and worry because God, the good shepherd, is also present in those dark places. He's present with us, and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. So the rod and the staff imagery that that he uses, that would have been very familiar to people of David's day, but I think oftentimes it's a little bit confusing to us because I don't know about you, but I don't know any shepherds. Like, I don't have any shepherds in my life, so I, I, don't, I don't know how shepherding works, right? But, but that would have been common language for, for the people of David's day, and it was common language for David because he was a shepherd at one point in his life. And so it's something that they would have been really familiar to them. The rod and the staff, those are two tools that would have immediately brought images to mind that they would have been familiar with. For David and his audience, those were familiar tools. So the rod is the shepherd's tool of protection. It would have been like a short, stubby, thick club type thing that he would have used solely for protection. It would have, he would have been used it to protect himself and to protect his flock from predators or assailants or anybody that would have meant to do him or his flock harm. That's what the rod would have been. The rod here symbolizes God's strength and protection. See we, we don't need to be afraid because we live under the protection of the good shepherd. And and you know, my kids are older now like they're, they've they've grown up a bit but I, I think and I, and I hope that they still feel safe in the presence of me and my wife because they know that that will protect them. And we see this in in little children don't we? Right? Like little kids if you ever approach a little kid that doesn't know you and their parents there like what's the first thing they do, right? They kind of get behind mom and dad, and they, they're, they like, kind of poking out and looking at you, right? Like, looking at you kind of funny. But they have that instinct, right? Like, I'm going to put my—I'm going to put mom or dad between me and whatever that perceived threat is, right? Because they know that that's a safe place to be. They're going to put that hedge of protection in front of them. And we see this, uh, right, like on a dark and stormy night, right? Like, kids are afraid, and where do they run? They run to mom and dad's bed, and they sleep soundly, right? So it, it, that, that fear of the dark or the fear of the storm, it, 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 it goes away. It's, it's out of sight and mind in the presence of mom and dad and in in the safety of their bed. So I wonder, though, like when we encounter fear, when we encounter worry, when we encounter anxiety, when we encounter those things, do we have that inclination right, to put that hedge of protection around us to run to our Heavenly Father who loves us and protects us? Do we run into his loving embrace? What I don't want to get lost here, though, in, in this idea of the shepherd's protection, is that it's the shepherd who leads the flock into and through the valley of death. Sometimes the, the path from green pasture to green pasture is going to go through the valley. Right? We talked about earlier on in the in the sermon series how a flock a grazing flock uh, would have to be moved right because if you just left the sheep in one place they would eat the, the the grass down to the dirt and then there would be nothing left so the shepherd's job was basically to take the sheep from pasture to pasture so that they could move so as they're eating over here these other pastures could rejuvenate and then they could bring them back and and they could rotate them around but when moving from pasture to pasture is when the flock is most exposed, right? I mean, predators do a great job of knowing where their prey is coming from and where they're going. And they know the best spots to attack. So the shepherd, it's the shepherd that's leading the flock here from green pasture to green pasture, but sometimes that path goes through the dangerous and dark valley. And the Bible is clear that God sovereignly ordains all things in our lives, including our trials and our sufferings. We need to we need to know that we need to to grab on to that truth because it's an important one for us to understand sometimes we suffer trials and tribulations because of our own sin sometimes we suffer trials and tribulations because of the sins of other people in our lives and sometimes we suffer trials and tribulation period end of sentence right sometimes we just suffer these things. God sovereignly ordains all of these things. He is sovereign over all of them. All things pass through his good and capable and wise hands. Because God is sovereign over the trials we face, Joseph can say to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's Genesis fifty twenty. God can say to the prophet Habakkuk concerning the impending Uh, destruction at the hands of the Babylonians, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's Habakkuk 1.5. And the Apostle Paul can write in his letter to the Romans, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. But God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Romans 5, 3 through 5. These passages are true because all of these things fall under the capable and good and wise, sovereign control of God. The message of the scriptures is that God uses trials and sufferings in order to strengthen us and build character in us. To mature us as his children. And this can seem counterintuitive to us, especially those of us that are parents, right? Because we work so hard as parents to make sure that nothing bad happens to our children, right? We want to protect them from every bad thing, and we know that we can't, but we want to, right? We try so hard, we spend so much effort trying to protect our children from every bad or difficult situation in life. So this might seem counterintuitive to us. But God allows us to suffer, and not just that, he sovereignly ordains it. Why? Why does God function in this way? Why doesn't he act like we act, right? Why doesn't he try to protect us from all of these bad things? Why does he just make life easy for us? Why? That's the question we always want to know. But we know the answer. The question is, how does our, our suffering benefit us in the long run? Right, that's the, quest, the better question that we should be asking. How do we reconcile God's promises to us, his promised protection in the midst of our difficulties? How do we reconcile that? I'm going to list a few ways that I believe God uses our suffering for our good and his glory. The first one is that he uses it to draw us closer to him. He uses it to draw us closer to him. I already talked about the simple reality that, that most of us long to see and feel God's presence in our lives when things are difficult, right? But we're, we, we tend to, we're prone to just kind of um, have God in the background, not really in the forefront of our minds when things are going good, because we've convinced ourselves that we've got everything under control and we're on cruise control and we really don't need God getting in the way and interfering and messing up all the good stuff that we've already got going on, because we're good, right? But in the midst of the deep suffering, the deep darkness, right, we're more prone to want to see God's presence and feel his presence. But the reality is, or the truth is, we often just want God to fix it for us, don't we? Like, we want God to be present, but we want him to be present because we just want him to fix the situation real quick so that we can move on back to the the good stuff where we've got it all back under control, and we don't need to really worry about it. That's perhaps our, our attitude, right? It's not Not inherently particularly righteous in those moments if we're being honest about it but ultimately God can and does use trials to draw us near to him I think sometimes the enemy wants us to see things differently I think he wants us to believe in those difficult times that God has abandoned us that he doesn't love us that he doesn't care about us that he's that he's not present but those are lies that the enemy wants us to see he wants to deceive us into believing those things I think you know if we lean into the promises of God in the in the seasons of struggle, it's a great opportunity for us to see God at work. I think God is is oftentimes most at work in those difficult seasons, right? Because as Paul teaches and James says something very similar that we should consider, we should rejoice in our suffering because God is using it to refine us, to to mature us, to grow us, to strengthen us. We're God has, has given us those truths in his word to encourage us because he wants us to see that he's at work in those moments. Sometimes like, a, like an expert uh, a surgeon, he's in there cutting away the, the dead and the, and the diseased parts of us. He's at work doing things in those dark seasons. He's not abandoned us or forsaken us, but is with us and he's ministering to our hearts. So he, he uses those moments to draw us closer to him. The second one is that he uses those moments to humble us he uses our suffering and our trials to humble us see pride i think is at the root of most of our problems if we're honest about it like i think if you think about most of the sins sins that we commit the sins that plague us i think if we think about them we can pretty much draw a straight line back to pride because it's pride that convinces us that we are our own functional god that we know better that we're smarter than God, that even though he says we shouldn't do these things, or we should avoid these things, or we should do these other things, right? We think, well, like, yeah, well, but you don't know my situation, God, right? I know better what I need. It's pride that's at the root of most of our issues as human beings, and I believe that humility is foundational to genuine repentance, right? So if we If we really want to repent and we really want to experience freedom and and victory over sin it starts with with humility right we need to first address the pride issues in our lives we just talked this weekend in the teen retreat the theme was 180 degrees right going from this direction in a complete opposite direction a complete 180 and we used the example of the apostle paul which is a great example of a complete 180 right guy that was persecuting the church hated christians hated christ all you know was, was trying to to arrest and kill and, and torture christians jesus knocks him off a horse on his way to damascus and all of a sudden paul's a different person right he does a complete 180 but that starts with humility right like paul was a self-righteous person he was a pharisee so he knew the law he obeyed it ferociously it was, it, was, it was core to his life. So, so outsiders looking at the Apostle Paul would have thought, like, this is a good guy. This is a righteous guy. This is a guy that has got it all together.
1: He had his religion,
0: like, like down to a T, right? But, but, but God was far from his heart. Like, he knew the truth, but, but God was far from his heart. So he needed to address that, that pridefulness. And he needed to knock him, literally knock him off his high horse. That he, could, that he could reach him and teach him. Suffering allows us to see our own frailty and see God's majesty. Again, that's a perfect picture of, of Paul, right? Knocked off his horse, blinded by the glory of Christ. Nothing's more humbling to our prideful hearts, though, than the realization that we, we aren't in control, that, that, the, that the, the life doesn't function according to us. We're not the center of the universe. We don't have everything in control. Nothing is more humbling to our prideful hearts than that realization. The next thing is that God uses our suffering and our trials and our tribulations to draw us closer to other believers. I think one of the great blessings of the Christian faith is that we get to live in community with other believers, that we get to do life together. We're not designed to be isolated. We're not designed to live on an island Right? We're not designed to be a kingdom unto ourselves, but rather we are designed and created to be in fellowship with other believers. That is how, how Christ has established his church to function. And as we are doing life with one another, we're in this Christian community where, where we get to experience the love and encouragement and accountability and support that we receive from one another. See, the brothers and sisters that you do life with are there to celebrate with you in the good times, but I think perhaps even more importantly, they're there to encourage you, to support you, to to cry with you, to pray with you, and for you in the difficult seasons of life. They minister to your heart. This is what Paul calls bearing one another's burdens in Galatians Galatians 6.2. Next, he uses it to reveal our sins. Some, perhaps even much of the suffering we endure is brought upon ourselves or others because of sin. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. Sin is is oftentimes a source of suffering for us. When when God allows us to to bear the weight of our transgressions and feel the pain of our sin, it's actually uh, uh, an act of great kindness and goodness and mercy and grace to us when he lets us feel that weight. See, let's be honest our sins most unappealing isn't it when we actually feel the consequences of it isn't that when our sin becomes most unappealing to us when we feel the weight of our sin when we see how it hurts ourselves or when we see more importantly how it hurts others that's when we feel the real weight of our sin and that's when it just doesn't it just doesn't feel as appealing as it used to right we call this worldly grief or sorrow because we're, we're feeling the consequences in the here and now. So we, we, we call that worldly grief or sorrow. And, and worldly grief and sorrow is important, but it's important to recognize that worldly grief and sorrow, if we, just, if we just respond to the consequences of our sin, if we just stop at the worldly grief and sorrow, then we never really can get to genuine repentance. See, Scripture tells us that worldly grief and sorrow leads us to death, but it's godly grief and sorrow that leads us to life that produces life in us. Godly grief allows us to feel the weight of our sin apart from the consequences. Godly grief produces the fruit of repentance that leads to life, whereas worldly grief leads to death. So if we never move beyond worldly grief, if we never get past just the consequences, then then we're in a dangerous place. But I think that more often than not, God lets us taste the bitterness of our sin through experiencing our consequences to, to help spur us on, right, to, to, to refine us, to help us get from worldly grief to godly grief, right? We, we get to taste how bitter that sin really tastes. It shocks our system, it gets our attention, so he can do the necessary work in our hearts and our minds that he's trying to do. Lastly, he uses it to conform us to the image of his son. If you recall, I talked last time uh, that we were in this about the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. We see in Romans 8:29 through 30, the order of salvation is this theological term that we use to talk about all the things that functionally happen in, our, in the act of, of conversion and salvation. What actually happens, it's just a, a functional way or a roadmap, if you will, for us to see the steps that God takes in bringing a person uh, from condemned to sinner to redeemed to saint. But the preamble to those verses that we looked at last time is verse 28. Let me read it to us. Romans 28 through 30 says, And we know, this is 28, this is the preamble, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul gets into the theological part about how it functions. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul's saying here that God uses all things for our good. All includes suffering and trials and difficulties and the psalm of death, the deep darkness. In order to accomplish his purposes in us, which is ultimately the being conformed to Christ's likeness, which culminates in in eternity with him in glory, where his restorative work in our lives is accomplished. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the big picture that we see in Romans 28 through 30. I love the quote that that we read this week in in our our, uh, worry study. After quoting 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, and I'm not going to read that, but that can be your homework, passage but after quoting that verse the author um, of our of the book we've been studying writes Paul is saying that he has known God's comfort in his troubles but not only that because he has been troubled and known comfort he is now in a position to comfort others God has done in Paul what he promised through Paul in Romans eight twenty eight. he has worked for his good making him more like Christ in all things So I want to take a minute to step away from the the teaching part of this just to to minister to our hearts for a minute because I think it can be difficult sometimes when we think about suffering. Like I'd venture to guess that those of you that, especially those of you that have been coming to the journey for a long time, I doubt I've said anything thus far that that you've never heard preached up here from the pulpit or taught before, right? But I think the reality is that oftentimes— it can be a long, long road from knowing the the truths of the scriptures to believing them, right? From from going from knowledge to, to the penetration of, of our hearts, right? Paul, again, is a perfect example, right? He had all of the knowledge of the scriptures. He knew the scriptures better than, I guarantee better than anybody in this room. He could have recited the Old Testament and the law from from heart. I, I know I cannot do that, and I, I'd venture to guess that, that most of you can't either, right? So Paul knew the truths of the scriptures. He knew them well, but they were far from his heart. See, I think oftentimes we can articulate truths, but in the dark seasons of life in particular, it's hard sometimes to get from, from head to heart. It can be a long and difficult road. The challenge for us is believing and applying God's truths in our lives. And I'll admit, that, that's honestly, that's where I've been at for, for quite some time right? Like, I, I've, I've talked about it, I've shared with, with many of you, I've, I've shared some in, in blogs and things like that, and we've we talked about it in the worry study. Like, I can read that book and I can see the truths in there, but but it can be difficult to apply those things to our lives. Admittedly, a lot of, of that is rooted in my own shortcomings and my own failures and my own uh, tendency to not Uh, keep up with the 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 spiritual garden in my life right not to tend to the garden in the way that i should sometimes i can easily prioritize the wrong things i can easily become distracted by the worldly things right i i i I met with a, a friend this week and we were talking about these things and and he made a great point to me that that oftentimes the the sinful things right the things that we tend to run to the things that distract us they promise us instant gratification right? Like anybody that's, that's gardened knows that you can't just go out and drop some seeds on the ground and then like expect to come back and there's just going to be these luscious plants there and you're going to reap this massive harvest, right? It doesn't work that way. It takes a lot of work to tend the ground, to make it, to, to prepare it and make it fertile so they can receive the seeds. And then even after you've planted the seeds and you've prepared the ground, you need to continue to care for it. You need to pull out the weeds that they'll choke the life away from the good things that you're trying to grow. You need to water it, you need to nurture it, you need to care for it, you need to make sure that it gets the right amount of sun but not too much sun because too much sun will scorch the plants, right? So I think oftentimes, uh, I know I've been guilty of not tending the garden in the way that I should. So maybe you're in a similar, similar place here today, and if that's you and for me, then hopefully Psalm 23 can minister to our hearts this morning knowing that God is at work. I want to share another passage with you from another psalm. This one's also written by David. Psalm 40, verse 11 through 12 says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And again, The author of that psalm is the same author of the psalm that we're studying today. It's David. David's reminding himself and us that in the midst of feeling like he's drowning in in the dark, that God in his love and mercy will be faithful to preserve him and be faithful to preserve us. Be encouraged and nourished in that truth today. God is your protector. Let his rod of protection bring you great joy and peace this morning. So hopefully we see how God's protection and his rod should comfort us. But what about his staff? A shepherd's staff would have been a long, slender stick, often often fashioned with a hook at the end. It was primarily the tool that he used to direct the flock. We talked a great deal early on in the series about just how helpless sheep are. Like sheep are just perhaps probably one of the most helpless creatures that, that God has created. I mean, without someone caring for them, uh, they will get themselves in all types of trouble I mean their 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 hair their wool will grow so thick that they fall over and can't get up if someone doesn't trim it off of them Sheep are just kind of kind of useless animals on their own really all right so sheep could and would regularly graze their ways off into bad situations right they would just eat their way down into a ditch or stuck in some brambles or something like that because they're just so dumb that that's where they would end up so the shepherd would use his staff to direct his flock and sometimes he'd use that hook to to kind of grab them and pull them out of trouble pull them back to safety so when david refers to the good shepherd's staff he's referring to god's loving um, guidance in our lives when we think about god's guidance in our lives there's some element of the supernatural involved, especially when we think about, um, in regards to our salvation, right? So God's guidance in our lives, there is this supernatural aspect. I'll I'll point us again to the passage we just looked at in Romans, where we can see supernatural things happening, like God's foreknowledge, and his predestination, and his calling, these things that, that happen at a supernatural level. But a lot of God's guidance and direction happens through ordinary means right? It's not all supernatural. It just happens through ordinary means. So as we close our time together, I just want to give you three ways that I think God provides guidance in our lives. First and foremost, God guides us through his word. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So many people have claimed to have heard the audible voice of God. I never have, and sometimes the ways that they use those claims um, make me a little bit skeptical about that. But one thing I do know for sure and for certain is that every time we open up this book, every time we open up the pages, we hear from God, directly from God that provides for us everything that we need to know for faith and obedience it's all contained in this book right so oftentimes you've you've heard me say that the bible is not exhaustive which means it doesn't tell us everything there is to know but it is sufficient it tells us everything that we need to know everything that we need to know about god everything that we need to know for life in faith and, and obedience to him everything we need to know for salvation Right? So it doesn't give us all the answers, perhaps, that we want to know. Remember that difference between want and need? It doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Sometimes there's questions that we want answered that God doesn't answer for us in his goodness. But it gives us everything that we need to know. Second, God guides us by his spirit. I guess technically this is kind of still leans in a little bit to the supernatural more than the ordinary but the way that we access the spirit in our lives i think is quite ordinary it's very very ordinary as believers we are indwelt with the holy spirit that means that christ has given us his spirit to live in and reside in us and jesus describes the spirit as the helper in john 14:26. but wrapped up in this phrase of of helper i think is is most assured assuredly guidance So, like, if I'm lost and looking for directions, a helper will guide me in the right direction. John 16, 13 says, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So what's the best way for us to access the spirit? Well, I believe the best way for us to access the spirit is through prayer and fasting, right? And the reason I say that is because that's what we see in the example from Jesus. So anytime we want to know uh, the best way to do something or the best way for something to function or how we're supposed to, to live our lives, our perfect example to look at is, is Jesus. And how did Jesus access the Spirit? How did he commune with his Father? Well, he went away to desolate places and he prayed and he fasted. He got away from the world and the distractions of ministry and the crowds of people that were weighing upon him. He got away from all of that noise so that he could go and he could just spend time with his heavenly Father. I believe we should learn from that example. Lastly, and then I'll close us in prayer, I think God guides us through the church. And I need to clarify here, like, we're not Catholic, so I'm not saying that, like, God's word and the church are of equal importance. God's word is primary, the church is secondary, But God has given us the church, and I I talked about this in the beginning in the Fellowship of the Believers, but God has given us the church as a means of his grace. He uses the the church to to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to edify us, to strengthen us, to uplift us, to to discipline us when necessary. The church does all of this vital work in our lives. He's given us one another to, to, to do life with together. All these are practical means through which God works his guidance in our lives, right? To keep us on track, to lead us as the good shepherd. See, Psalm 23, 4 reminds us that God's protection and guidance are ever-present in our lives, especially when we find ourselves in the psalm of death, in the deep darkness. One way that we can remember his presence is by coming to his table and celebrating communion. We do that each and every week here at The the Journey. We celebrate communion. You see, I think Psalm 23, the the last couple verses that talk about this banquet where where David changes the tone from the shepherd imagery to the banquet imagery, I think that's a, a foreshadow of what Christ would ultimately do with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, right? Where he brings them together for this meal, where he places this meal before them, and he reminds them of of his body, which is broken for them, and his blood, which is poured out for them in this new covenant, so that they can be redeemed and saved. I think that's a foreshadow that we see here in Psalm 23. See, Jesus entered into the deepest darkness so that we might be redeemed and restored to God. We remember this every week when we take communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and then Joseph and the worship team are going to come. They're going to lead us in in in, uh, in song as we worship God, and then we will take communion together, where we celebrate the gospel in our lives. So let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the, the truths of Psalm 23. Uh, we thank you for we thank you for the green pastures, and we thank you for the still waters but but even more so perhaps lord we we thank you for your presence in the valley of the shadow of death in the psalm of Eth, in the deep darkness lord we thank you for your rod and your staff for they comfort us and your word promises these things to us and lord i just pray for our hearts and minds i pray that you would um, help make clear that path that you would remove the obstacles that oftentimes are set before us that the world and and just the 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 difficulties and struggles and and worries of life that that often get in the way lord i pray that you would just remove those distractions for us that you would make that path straight and smooth and and make it easy for us to to transfer um, knowledge of you into belief in in your promises that, that they would encourage us and and build us up i pray for my own heart in that lord it can be difficult sometimes we can we can become distracted um by all these other things i pray that you would nourish our spirits today as we celebrate communion together and that all of this would be for your glory we ask this in the most beautiful name Amen.